Hey, everybody. Welcome to Friday night's late night happy hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky uh, coming to you, as I just mentioned, Andy, on Friday. We got a great interview. Hey. 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 <laughs> hey. Bernie ain't got shit to do. You might as well get high. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a great interview coming up with uh, Nikias Duncan from Basketball News that we uh, we recorded earlier today. Get into a bunch of stuff with the Lakers and Clippers. Um, talk a little bit about some Eastern Conference stars and uh, what's going on just really around the league. One of the great young uh, basketball writers. Everybody should be following him at Nikias NBA. Uh, so we'll get to that in a second. Before we start, though, Andy, some some football news. Uh, not Super Bowl related. The Rams are apparently kicking the tires on Matt Stafford. Matt Stafford says the Rams are a viable place for him to land. He wants out of Detroit. Who can blame him? Uh, and is like, sure, the Rams, that works for me. And the Rams are like, okay, we'll see what we can do. It doesn't feel to me like there's so much kicking the tires on Matt Stafford or somebody else as much as they're taking a bunch of tires lighting them on fire, and then hoping that that creates smoke signals to teams and quarterbacks around the league that they would like to do business with them and bring in a new quarterback. Yeah, I, like I think a lot of – this is the like, tires feels too subtle for what yeah, they're doing. Yeah, it's true. I, I think they're in the office with the with the sales agent just trying to figure out how they can get the price on that car down a little bit. Because, yeah. you know, like, well, look, you know, sir, that, that car normally is going to cost you, you know, a few first-round picks and a second rounder and a third rounder. Well, look, man, my finances, it's a pandemic. We're a little strapped for that. I don't think we can – you. why don't you go talk to your sales manager and see what you can do for us, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to figure something out. Um, but what you, you mentioned it, Andy, it's not that the Rams, you know, we had Jordan Rodriguez and Rich Hammond on last couple weeks ago, ago, whatever it is. And, you know, asked a lot of these questions. This was right after right now gate. He's, you know, when, when, uh, the season's over and, and, uh, Sean McVay's asked the question, he says, he's our quarterback right now. Um, and then the next day basically said it again, just in case people were confused. And then basically Les Snead a couple of days later in his press conference was, was essentially said, look, you dumb shits. What are you not understanding? <laughs> We're telling you we are looking to but move they, him right. if possible. Like that's what we're moving. We would Les be willing Snead to move like, away from him. We do not. Yeah. Like he really was just like, oh my God, do we have to spell this out anymore for you morons? We are but trying the, to move the guy. But that's the thing. It's like in, in you know, would we are more than happy to upgrade it at, at quarterback. And that's, that's the fascinating part because, like, nobody's we're not here to debate whether or not Matt Stafford is a better quarterback than Jared Goff. You're a bit, you've been better, you know, better, you've been uh, more confident in Goff than me for a while. Um, no, I'm starting yeah, to come yeah, around, right? I my, my argument 16 games of Goff this year it was has become more yeah. persuasive, but like, you, you would agree that Matt Stafford is a better quarterback than Jared Goff. Yeah, I do think he's a better quarterback. Um, I think he's more prolific. He, I think he's got a more live arm, but also too, I mean, the, going over, it's uh, more mobile. No, he, I, mean, I mean, it's all relative, but I mean, he, Stafford he, is definitely a more mobile quarterback. He's more mobile. I would not want either one of them to run to save my life, but no, he's, but, no, he's Stafford's, more, a, Stafford's, Stafford's a better runner and mover he's a, and everything he's a, than Goff. He is a better runner mover. I just don't think he is particularly good at Sean Watson. It's more that Goff is just worse. But the thing that really stood out when you when you start looking over the discrepancies and numbers and things like that, and, and Stafford's are better, 
but what jumped out at me was just how many fewer turnovers he has mm-hmm. and not even just interceptions. Um, his, his, uh, fumble count over the last three seasons was I think six or seven lower than golf. The last two, yeah. he just, he just takes better care of the ball. And here. that's playing behind a much crappier offensive line. I mean, it's, the Lions uh, have never really been yeah. able to protect Stafford, which and is part of the reason. Guys to throw to. Right, which is part of the reason he wants to leave. Yeah, um, it, you know, it, so he's just it's well that, and he's also he's not interested in resorting to cannibalism uh, as a strategy from his coach. You know, the one that said they're just going to be biting oh, the people. Guys. And, you the know, hell like, was that? Seriously, that. That more than anything else, like if if I'm Matt Stafford and I'm staring down the the end of my career and I'm hearing the new coach that they brought in talk about how they're going to be biting people's kneecaps and like smiling after you knock them back, then we're going to knock them back. That like doing all this, basically their strategy is we're going to play illegal football. It's what you say. It's it's 2021, man. It's like you know, it's in 1958. Like you, you, okay, great. Your football coach talks like that, but like we've moved beyond that. Oh yeah, real football coaches now do not talk like that. Seriously, if if I saw that and I'm Matt Stafford, my reaction is to call my agent and say, honestly, I'm 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 out as soon as I see Dan Campbell's goatee. Like it's, that's like that is not grown up men in positions of responsibility should not have those. Well, well then in the meantime, you've got it's funny actually. Like we're trying to find this Goldilocks uh, situation where you get the head coach who says the thing that's just right, mm-hmm. and like Dan Campbell definitely too hot, and then whatever the <laughs> whatever the hell this new coach in Philly is, I have no idea what the guy's name is. I've seen these clips on Twitter where it, it looks like he's giving some genius talk, like 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 he's uh, like the head of some new startup talking about, you know, systems and, you know, that we're going to be the smartest team, but we don't have to think. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like he's too cold. Can you find a court uh, coach who's just right? Like yeah. these two ex- these two extremes going on, by the way, when nobody seems willing to hire Eric Bieniemy. like like you're sitting there going like, my God, if it ain't race. How the hell bad is Eric Bieniemy in an interview? Which, by the way, I don't think that's what it is. But you you start <sighs> when you start trying to play devil's advocate for things that you don't actually believe, but you try to come up with a reason. You're like, okay, maybe Bieniemy just doesn't interview well. Maybe he says something that rubs people the wrong way. Whatever. Again, this is not my thesis. I'm just throwing this out. And then you hear these two guys on opposite extremes, introduce themselves just, to their new franchise. It's just like, you know, it, it, it's, it, I mean, look, maybe Dan Campbell's a good really coach. Good. I don't know. But like just the, the knuckle dragging of the, uh, of the, this, this, uh, you know, knee biting. It's just, I mean, like there is a 0% chance that it does not wear on people in two seasons. If if that's really your message, this sort of old school smash mouth, the, in two seasons the locker room is going to be so over your shit. It's like it's it's unbelievable. Um, that's just not the way people operate anymore, and it it's it's absurd. And so um, I just even what is so striking about this, and I ultimately I don't think the Rams are going to be able to move off of Goff. This year, I mean, they don't have the draft capital 
to, I think, make a look. I guess it depends on the market, but they they likely with with no first round pick this year and you know limited all that stuff. They likely don't have the draft capital to move off of you know to give enough for Stafford. The financial penalty if they cut Goff is like sixty million dollars. If they trade him, it's still twenty. Yeah, I don't know who the hell you can trade him to. Um, I mean, it'd be like the NBA where you'd have to like attach a pick to it. Like, I don't, like, I don't know what I don't know well, what that the is. Like, they don't even have a lot of. They don't those even, right. That's my point. Like, I don't. I, I I don't know how they get that done. And so, um, what is striking about it is how just nakedly unconcerned they are about hurting Jared Goff's feelings or offending him or making it seem like he's not their quarterback or they lack comp like it's not subtle <laughs> like they're not they're not saying one thing and then doing another which is how this normally goes they're like yeah like hey shit if we can do better at quarterback that's exactly what we're going to do i mean you you've seen the frustration building with mcveigh the entire season i think i think really and this is something jordan rodriguez talked about on the few times that she's been on the show over the course of the rams season the turnovers i think are what really upset mm-hmm. mcveigh more than anything else like it's it's one thing to stall out on a drive and have to punt and pin a team back, hope to rely on your defense. And the Rams have the type of defense that Green Bay game notwithstanding, you've been able to rely on all season. And you know, with Aaron Donald, you can pretty much always rely on them. It's another thing when you put your defense on your heels because you're turning the ball over. Well, especially, especially when they keep scaling the offense back for the specific purpose of preventing you from having to turn the ball over again something that jordan pointed out every time she was on our show it's like the rams didn't go downfield they had a you know very conservative offense where they went short passes and got the ball out quickly and did all these things and you know relied on yards after the catch or whatever it might be they did not go for these explosive long plays high risk plays it was a very low risk low leverage offense and he still through 13 interceptions this year against also 20, 20 touchdowns and the fumbles and, and the fumbles I mean, yeah it, it, no, just it, the, the all you put all of it together in an offense that's designed for him to do not that and it's it's incredibly frustrating it's just and he's not getting better no and I, i've said this before and i maintain that this is the case i don't think jared goff is the sole reason that that offense has regressed i think the number one reason that it's not the same that it was a couple of years ago is they don't have anybody who brought to the table what Todd Gurley had. Like Todd Gurley was what everything was built around. That being said, though, you are correct. Goff seems to be regressing, and he certainly does not seem to be somebody that can – you know, elevate either what's there or just that's the thing. It's like, okay, you don't have Todd Gurley, but they still ran the ball reasonably effectively at a lot of points this season. They still have some good personnel on the outside. The offensive line was actually pretty good this year. And it just, it, it, we, you know, like we said, and we'll get to Nikias Duncan here after this, but like you just have to have perfect conditions for him to be really good and elevate and, and lead your team places that otherwise couldn't go. And that's not football. You can't count on that. No. So, um, all right, so we'll we'll, we'll uh, maybe do a little we'll talk a little more NFL afterwards, um, but we want to get to our interview with Nikias Duncan again, one of the best young basketball writers out there. Uh, we spoke to him this afternoon. Uh, tons of great stuff on the Lakers and Clippers and uh, everything going on around the league. So here's here's that.
All right, Nakias, thank you so much for coming on. We, we really appreciate it. Good to see you again. No problem, man. How are y'all? We're doing good. Um, so Andy and I, we, we, we've been very angsty. Uh, the Lakers, uh, they've lost two games in a row, Nikias. Uh, the, the, the kingdom is crumbling. Uh, things are desperate. They did go like 14 minutes, it seemed, in, in Detroit on Thursday without scoring. So, I mean, that was particularly ugly. But when you see stuff like that, uh, you know, a couple games in a row, yeah, what do you, what do you think? I think it's time to pick up some phones. You got to make some calls, man. <laughs> this team, this is a, I don't know. Okay. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth necessarily, read too much into what you're saying. But do you move LeBron first, AD first, or do you package them together for picks? Because you probably get a lot and you just blow the thing up and start over. I hear Cade Cunningham is going to be the next coming. So I think what you do is you kind of scour the bottom of the standings, see who has nice. the best odds for that top pick. And I think you trade them separately so you can get two, two, uh, two that is, that, that is how fired. smart front offices make smart moves, Nikaya. So <laughs> That's what well. you do. You, you get rid of the aging LeBron and the injury-prone Anthony Davis. And then that you is land, true. Yeah, you get Cade Cunningham, you get Evan Mobley, and now you have Laker basketball set for the next 15 years. Right, there and you, and you can use those guys in a couple of years to trade for Anthony Davis. <laughs> <laughs> Once they're ready. Right, Once exactly. They're ready. There it is, full circle. But, you know, it, it obviously, you know, people freak out locally when, when these sorts of things happen. But, like, I I, I heard you and, and Steve, uh, Steve Dunn Jr., your, your podcast uh, co-partner on the Dunker Spot, like, kind of talking about the Lakers and breaking them down. And, you know, granted, this was, I think, recorded before the calamity. Uh, in Detroit, but when you look at, at at the Lakers and you see where they are now, and we'll we'll talk about them relative to the Clippers too, who are, you know, doing some good things too. If you if you want to like kind of find where the weaknesses might be, because that's where's where people's heads are after they lose a couple games in a row. What do you think they are? I think what I've seen from the Lakers this year, good and bad, really, is that. They haven't necessarily had to have been super engaged on both ends. Like they've been the best defense in the NBA by far, and it still feels like they're playing at like 80% throttle. And offensively, you know, they're doing a little bit of doing some different things. LeBron is taking a little bit of, don't want to say he's taking a back seat, but he definitely is, isn't dictating as much as he normally does. Like Dennis Schroeder's doing a lot of the handling. You still have Anthony Davis to kind of run actions through. You're doing some high post stuff with Marcus All. So from there, you're kind of letting, you know, if LeBron doesn't run the action, you're letting a lesser player run the action. And I think that's fine for building habits and building counters that are going to be necessary in the playoffs. But in the regular season, there comes some times to where those guys don't have it, and you kind of need your top guys to step up. Um, going back to the Detroit game, LeBron was playing without Anthony Davis. Uh, he started out hot, and then once he slowed down, the Lakers slowed down too. So I think – the big thing for me is just kind of energy slash effort level. And I don't think that's going to be – that's not something I'm worried about long term. That's just them trying to get through the regular season healthy. So I'm not super worried about that. Yeah, th this is something Brian and I have talked uh, a lot about on the Late Night Happy Hour and also the Land of Lakers podcast, um, Nikias. Just the idea that the Lakers are not, you know, going at 80% the way, you, the way you put it. And some nights I don't even think it's that high. <laughs> Um, Sometimes they max out at 80% and they spend a lot of it at 60. 
But I don't think they're doing it because like you'll see often with teams that are coming off a championship or maybe looking to three beat something like that or you know three finals appearances in four years where they're just bored with the regular season and they, they have no interest in it. They just want to get through it and they're just thinking about the playoffs. I don't think this team is like that. I actually think they're pretty professional in the way they go about doing this. I think they recognize just we are coming off, you know, a, a very quick turnaround, you know, a finals run. We've got LeBron at his age. We've got Anthony Davis with the wear and tear uh, that he's had over his body. This roster is not as old as last season's, but it's certainly not a young roster. There, there's an element of practicality to what they're doing as opposed to just thinking they're above 72 games this year. Right, right. I would agree with that. And I would, you know, reference them giving more time to a guy like THT. You know, there's just a lot, there's a lot more experimentation with the young guys. Like they're doing a little bit more to try to find a role for Kyle Kuzma. I think that's, they've made that an emphasis to see exactly what he is and where he fits. So that's why you will have these two game stretches to where maybe it doesn't look super great. But long term, I don't think there's a long, I don't think there's a big pressing issue there. Like we know what, what the you, Lakers are for. What do you see? Like you, you talk about a different role for Kuz. And like I, I, I think how I actually asked Vogel about this a, a few games ago. Just he, he's you know, Kuz. You can tell is definitely embracing that idea of like a little bit of an energy guy. I think he wants to still score and all that stuff. You know, but like I'm going to come in. I'm going to rebound. I'm going to get some offensive boards. I'm going to try to block shots. I'm going to be that sort of energy player. And I think there some of the the, the comfort in doing that comes from having the contract um, and knowing that he's secure, at least with the Lakers or someone else is, is going to get his money. Um, and I think that that helps. But when you talk about like a different kind of, uh, of stuff that, that, that they're, you know, experimenting with him, what are you seeing? Um, I think it's what you point to is okay. kind of taking that, um, taking that initiative to be more of an effort guy. I will also point out that, he has looked a lot better because he's knocking down threes. That was a huge question mark for him coming into the season. He's, I think he's around 38% mark right now on moderate volume. We'll see if that lasts. It's because we know how the jumper kind of fluctuates. But once you add in the increased effort on defense, you see him crashing the glass a little bit more. You see him more as a play finisher, more so than an ISO guy. And then he's a guy that can kind of relocate and knock down spot up shots for you. You have a very valuable forward on your hands. Um, I, you mentioned THT a little bit before, and I definitely want to get into your impressions of him. But I remember about a month before the season began, Nikias, we had you on the Land of Lakers podcast. Um, and it was right around when it was solidified that they had Dennis Schroeder, Montrezl Harrell. They, they may have actually even had Wes and Mark Gasol by then. I, I don't remember the exacts of how these things laid out. But we talked a lot about how you thought these new pieces would end up fitting in with the team. Now that we're 20 games in, what, what are your impressions specifically of the new guys in, in terms of good fit, bad fit, fit still you know, being determined, that sort of thing? Um, I don't think I've seen anything that's out of the realm of what I've pictured coming in. I will say Dennis Schroeder has been a lot better defensively than I thought he was going to be. Us that's too. Like he's always had the tools and he's had flashes even going back to last postseason to where he looked like a really good on ball defender, but he hasn't put that together consistently throughout his career. And he has, he's completely locked in. So I think that's been the most impressive thing for him. Um, 
like I'm how much do you think of that? How much do you think of that is, is started? You know, once obviously Atlanta is not the greatest place, particularly that era, to learn good habits about anything. Um, just with all the inconsistency there, and you know, it was Atlanta. But like when when you go last year, he's playing with CP and you know a, a more disciplined team environment and and all that kind of stuff. How much do you think he sort of came from that portion of his career? And now he comes here, and it's a championship caliber team, and the expectations are you have to be able to at least compete on that side. I think he's fed off of the heightened expectations. Like even in Atlanta, it was a mess for most of his tenure there. But when they did make the playoffs, he was going toe to toe with a guy like John Wall when he was healthy. Mm-hmm. in OKC. Um, didn't particularly score the ball well, but again, raised his effort defensively, really brought some extra energy and added something as a ball handler. So I think going to the Lakers to where you have not just playoff aspirations, but title aspirations from day one. And even beyond that, you're the clear favorite. So I think he has really taking on that challenge and trying to fit in the best way that he can. Um, he also kind of had to back himself up a little bit because once the word got out that he was like, I'm, I'm going to be a starter, my agents talked about it, and getting a little bit of that blowback there, there's a target on your back, especially in L.A. Like, hey, if you are, you're you claiming, hey, I'm going to be a starting point guard, even with LeBron there, and we can talk about how silly that conversation could be. <laughs> like, in general, there's going to be a little bit of more attention on your, on your head. So you got to step up there. And I think he's really taken that challenge, particularly on the defensive end. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 I guess, continuation of that, when, when you're talking about it, you know, wanting to start, it's a contract year form. There's not really a better showcase you can have as a player, whether re-signing with the Lakers, or just on the open market, the idea of I could handle being, you know, a starting caliber important player on both sides of the ball of a championship team. I mean, that that's a really, really good resume builder, particularly for a guy like Schroeder, who spent a lot of uh, the early part of his career, and I, I will be the first to admit, I am among those who felt this way, that was like, look, he's obviously got talent and he can score, but he's erratic, and, and he's not somebody that I would want to rely on. And being able to turn that type of perception on its head, whether last year where I thought he played really well with OKC, or the opportunity in front of him here. I mean, th- this could be a potentially career-changing opportunity for him. I definitely agree. That he He's taken all of this in stride. I do have my worries about the jumper. Like we talked about Kuz. Kuz shooting well. Dennis Shooter is not. And I think at a certain point, especially when you're playing alongside a guy like LeBron, you have to space the floor. Like That's just kind of a prerequisite for being a ball handler alongside LeBron. So that has to come around for him. But everything else, the rim pressure, the on-ball defense, the playmaking, like it's all been there. And it couldn't have come at a better time for him. Yeah, I mean, the rim pressure thing is funny. It's like he was – he's still been able to get to the rim. That – you know, he's a bad January, not shooting the ball well. But he's not finishing. And so, like, the last – the second half of the – what was it, the Cleveland game, I guess? The, the second half of that game and then at least some of the Detroit game, he was better. Um, but like the, the, the gap between you talked about with AD not being there, like it, the Detroit game looked like last year where the nights where LeBron couldn't carry them and orchestrate and whatever in that, in that fourth quarter and they stopped scoring, it just wasn't coming from anyone. And, but when it, when Schroeder works, Other than Kuz. yeah, well, I mean, they went, what was it? Seven minutes without seven or seven yeah. minutes without scoring. I mean, yeah, nobody T- scored. 
THT uh, chipped in, but I mean, he did. I'm, I'm just talking about down the stretch. Like sure, literally, sure. nobody. Yeah. They're on 87 okay. points for like an yeah. hour. Yeah. Um, and so, like you, the the difference he makes offensively when it's working jumps off the screen. So, how good do you think it needs to be? Like when you talk about the shooting needs to be a little better from the outside. Does he need to be, you know? 37, 38, 41% or can like he settle in at a credible 34, 35 and still that's enough if he can get to the rim and finish? I think if it's a credible 35, 36, that's really all he needs. Like I don't think, especially at this stage of his career, teams aren't going to change the way to defend him. Mm -hmm. Like they are going to dig, they're going to duck under picks. They're going to help off if he's spotting up on LeBron and AD running actions. So you just have to hit that at a marginal rate to where they have to at least think about it. And as long as you do that, that's going to complement the driving, which is his strength. And he can kind of keep the chain moving that way. So he, he just needs to be – if he's average, that's fine because he brings everything else. The other thing that, that I wanted to ask you, because you, you made a great point on the pod uh, with, with Steve the other day that you know part of what's made the Clippers so effective offensively is that every like everybody is shooting – in the you know the high high you know, mid to high forties or something like that 41, 42, 43, 45 percent from three and it's distributed from Kawhi all the way down you know through Marcus Morris and whatever the Lakers their three point shooting has been kind of floated a lot by you know LeBron has just been insane um, you know up around you know last few games up around forty two percent now overall for the season but KCP is still at fifty percent. Um, Caruso is still well over 50%. I, how, 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 how much are you buying the outside shooting for the Lakers, particularly relative to the consistency that the Clippers have shown? Because the, the flip side for the Lakers is AD is around like 32% and hasn't shot the ball particularly well from out there. Um, you know, like, cause that distinction to me could become a really critical, um, difference maker assuming those two teams meet in the playoffs? I would say on balance, I do think the Clippers have better shooters. Like they have higher percentage guys, and they have just a broader volume of guys that can knock down shots. So I will give the Clippers the edge there. Um, where the Lakers will have the edge is that they have two guys in LeBron and Anthony Davis, well, really three guys and Dennis Schroeder, who can get to the rim whenever they want to enforce rotations and create those shots. And one of the things that I brought up on the pod was that the Clippers are shooting super well and they are scheming this thing up to where they have more off-ball actions and they're kind of forcing rotations that way. But the dirty little secret behind the offense is that they are not getting to the rim a lot and they're not getting to the free throw line a lot. So while they've done a fantastic job of generating looks, it hasn't always been super easy. So I do think that even if the Clippers have better shooters, the Lakers – are set up in a way to where they can create those kind of looks easier just because of the guys they have and the rim pressure that those guys provide. Is it they can't get to the rim or aren't getting to the rim or can't get to the rim? I would say it's a little bit of both. Like I do think Kawhi and Paul George can get to the rim, but as I mentioned on the pod, if those guys are in isolation situations or they're coming off a ball screen, both of those guys want to go to their pull-up jumpers. If Kawhi's isolating, he wants to post up and toss in a post fadeaway. They just kind of lean towards being jump shooters, and they're very, 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 very good at it. But that's just kind of their tendencies as players, whereas LeBron, he's getting downhill, and what's made him even more unstoppable is that now he's complimenting that with a jump, with a three-point shot that's going in at a 42% clip. One in the like meantime, Lou, Lou Williams didn't get in the line. 
Like that, that's a big part. That's of, weird. It, right. But it's true though. I mean, he's, he's shooting fewer than uh, half the free throw attempts that he had last season. Yeah. It's just been a weird thing. And that's kind of what I'm tracking as the season goes on because they're just not going to have six guys shoot 40% from three. Like those, those numbers are going to dip at least a little bit. So I want to see what the counter is. And that's also why I asked Steve on the pod, if he thinks they're a piece away, if they need to trade for a point guard, he kind of pushed back and said, they just need someone that can get to the rim, not necessarily a point guard, but I tend to agree with that. They need somebody that can consistently pressure the rim. Well, as we discussed earlier, you know, Anthony Davis and LeBron James clearly should be available. So, you know, make an offer. See, see what you can do. What are the biggest things that you see right now with the Clippers um, that look different this year that speak to Ty Lue being, being the one in charge right now? Whether whether you're talking about on the court, whether you're talking about what seems to be the, the vibe on the team, because you, you may have heard, Nikias, they had some issues last season. Um, yeah. so that I was going to say it was a word on the street until they all just flat out admitted it. <laughs> but uh, but uh, wait, what are you seeing that looks different to you? Um, again, offensively, I think their pace overall was still low, and that kind of needs to tick up a little bit. But in terms of how fast they're running their actions, I think that's that's the biggest change. Like that's just a Ty Lue staple period, even going back to the Cleveland days when he took over. Even those Cavaliers didn't push and transition a ton, but when they wanted to trigger their half court sets, they did it with a purpose. So I think we've seen a lot more of that for the Clippers. And that's helped Paul George kind of attack with an advantage. That's helped Kawhi Leonard attack with an advantage. And then once those guys get around the elbow, they're forcing those rotations that are similar to guys getting all the way to the paint. And once those rotations happen, they're kicking it out, and it's a swing-swing sequence. I think a guy like Nicholas Batum has been huge for him because he's really kept the ball moving in those situations. So I think the ball movement and just the pace in which they're getting into their actions has been the biggest change from last year to this one. Yeah, he ended up a really sneaky good pickup for them. Uh, Nick Batum. I mean, he he made sense when they brought him in, but the type of impact that he's had it, it has been better than I thought it would be. He's been fantastic. He's doing it on both ends. Like the Clippers are switching a ton. He's picked up a lot of tough matchups to kind of save Kawhi and save Paul George, and he's held his own there. And again, offensively, he's knocking down shots. He's keeping the ball moving with passes. He's relocating off the ball and kind of keep stressing defenses in that way. Like he has just filled in all the gaps they need him to. And how are any concerned that that's not because look, I mean, Nick Batum, more than any human being probably in the NBA, was left for dead um, over the last season or two. I always, I am, you know, I am always, um, you know, suspicious of, of, skillful players who are kind of like that, who aren't stars who get paid a lot and, you know, end up on really bad teams. It just, they're, they're really specifically Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like Charlotte is where spirit goes to die. Kind of. Um, but like, you know, he, he's not a guy who is, you know, necessarily good enough to elevate bad talent. And, you know, you, you well past the point in his career where you need, you know, you want him as the focal point of your offense, but Always seem from a skill set standpoint to to you know to be a perfect complement to a really good team with really good players. I, I I don't worry about him being somebody who kind of tails off and slows down or whatever over the course of the year because this role seems to make perfect sense. But should there be concern that you know because if he if he tails off, it makes a big difference in what they're doing. 
I don't super worry about it for two reasons. Um, as you alluded to, he has the skill set to fit alongside a good team, and the Clippers have two of the best four, two of the best five wings in basketball. So he's in a situation to where all of his best skills are going to be highlighted. And beyond that, even if he does tail off or if he gets hurt because he's had those concerns throughout his career, you take him out at the four and you insert Marcus Morris. And he doesn't give you the passing, but he gives you the switchable defense. He gives you the shot making. He gives you the three-point shooting. So I don't think the Clippers will super miss a guy like Nixon Batum if they do have to pull him out the rotation or cut his minutes or whatever. In the meantime, though, if he actually manages to keep this up all year, if you if you have some type of lineup with Kawhi, Paul George, Batum, and Marcus Morris, like the the switchability of that lineup, I mean, I don't even know who the fifth person is. I'm not even sure I care. Like that, <laughs> there's a lot of possibility there in terms of just being able to look at most matchups across the NBA and being able to say, I can defend. We can defend that. There isn't. I mean. You- you go bigger, go Zubat, get the five. And, you know, he started off slow, but now he's back to protecting the rim at a high level and finishing around the rim. So you have that kind of switchability one through four and then a rim protector like that. Good luck. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because like you know, we were talking to Law Murray, who right, you know, covers the Clippers for uh, The Athletic earlier this week. That was Monday, right? Yeah, God, yes, it was. Time is time, man. I, I mm. um, But... And he pointed out, like, they've sort of solved this point guard problem, which was seen to be their big weakness. The Clippers got to go get a point guard, got to go to point, just by saying, by kind of telling Kawhi and, and, and PG to run the offense. And to some degree, that, that mitigates the, the Lou Williams issue. You know, what can you do within the playoffs? You know, you need somebody at the point. It mitigates the, do we got to go out and get somebody issue and all that stuff? We don't have any things to try. I, 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 it, those guys are skillful enough, and I mean, is that kind of how you read it too? That they, they've kind of managed to get past this this point guard problem that they, that everybody seemed like they that or was saying that they had coming into the year. They've definitely quieted a lot of it. I hesitate to go all the way there and say that they don't need someone because, again, I am still eyeing the rim attempt numbers. I'm still eyeing the free throw attempt numbers. And even if you feel like Lou Williams is going to bounce back, I mean, his career would say he at some point he's going to get back to drawing a bunch of fouls. We've seen what happens to him in the postseason. Yeah. And beyond him, again, Kawhi leans pull-up and turnaround jumper. Paul George leans pull-up. Marcus Morris leans post-up and turnaround. Nicholas Batum mm-hmm. is a jump shooter. Luke Kennard is a jump shooter. I do worry about the rim pressure they can generate in a playoff setting. I don't think – they're going to miss it in the regular season at all. Like, I think the system is good enough. There's enough low-hanging fruit, particularly with the pace, that they can lean to and look even better offensively. And they have been the elite offense already. So I don't super worry about it there. But when games do slow down and they need someone that can just kind of get to the rim and force a rotation, I do think they need one more guy. And I would say dangle a guy like Reggie Jackson or dangle a guy like Lou Williams if you feel like you want to try to cash in on a chip. Get someone that can – get to the rim for you. And that's going to actually just sort of solve the Lou problem by trading Lou. That's interesting. Um, Assuming they kept it, that that goes in a completely different direction than I was going to ask this question, obviously, but let's just say that they keep him. They find some other, the the Lakers have a perceived playoff potential problem in, in, in Harrell and his ability to stay on the floor and defend the Clippers have the same kind of issue with Lou. 
which one do you think is more likely to hurt their respective team based on who's on the roster now? Uh, I just I, thought of that. That's a good question. I would say Lou is the bigger problem because he, he I mean, he's easier to hunt just because of how small he is. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, if he does get play off the floor, again, he's also the best chance they have at getting the guy that can go downhill and draw some fouls for you. I was going to say, I think the Clippers have a harder time replicating what they look for in Lou than the Lakers have replicating what they look for in Harold. I I think that, to me, it's actually – I don't consider – I mean, this is something Brian and I have talked about a lot since the moment Montrez Harrell uh, was signed. I I don't – uh, discount the idea that Montrose Harrell in certain uh, situations in the playoffs could become problematic or difficult to put on the floor. I just don't think it matters that much. Like I don't, I don't think that's going to become a big thing for the especially Lakers. If, I mean, especially if Kuz can really genuinely yeah. pull that rebounder role, that energy role, can go crash. I, not the same player, obviously. No, but look, I, I think Mon- I think Montrez Harrell was very much brought in to be a regular season guy, like somebody that can take the load off a lot of these guys over the course of the regular season, you know, these guys who went on deep playoff runs. And what happens in the playoffs happens in the playoffs. But if he can play well over the course of the regular season, I've heard a few people describe him as an innings eater, and I I think that's actually a great way of putting it, then that $9 million was very, very well spent in my mind. Absolutely. Like, you know what he brings in the regular season. And I agree with you. If it does get to a potential matchup, say they face Denver, like if he's just getting mashed defensively or he's getting mismatched hunted by Jamal Murray or somebody like that, you take him out and you play Anthony Davis at the five. And that's sure, pretty good. That's, I mean, that's just kind of it. All right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's likely going to be a lot. It's likely going to be a lot of that with LeBron as the, you know, point guard name quasi four in certain things, and then three wings, which is what we saw in in the playoffs, and it won a championship. You know, maybe Marcus Morris, I mean, uh, Markeith Morris or Kuz, but we've we've basically seen the look that it's going to be in closing moments of high leverage games, and I think for the most part, it's going to be LeBron, yeah. AD, KCP, Caruso, TBD, fifth guy. Right, defaulting, that, defaulting to Schroeder right now, and, and I just—I don't mean to interrupt you, but like the—I I do actually mean to interrupt you because I'm just excited about this point. Um, the, <laughs> say, I, I, it felt like I you literally went out of interrupted your way you to interrupt. Well, obviously, it was important, um, but like the dynamic is different too. Like Trez, first of all, like you just said, Andy is not already not in that closing lineup. There, the expectation is the Lakers won't be able to hold on to him next year anyway, and it's a different deal than the Schroeder thing where you're trying to build that sort of longer relationship. Um, you know, the starting thing is a much bigger issue for Schroeder than it is for, for Harrell and all that. So, so like the dynamic isn't even the same, like if Trez doesn't like not playing down the stretch in the fourth, I guess he can go and, you know, be upset with a a second team next year when he, when he gives press conferences. Um, we want to ask you a little bit about the, the, the conference, but I, Andy, you, you talked about, you tweeted about this the other day, right? About the, the Anthony Davis and what might be his recovery 
problem from from last year i thought that was an interesting one i wanted to get into but go ahead yeah yeah i i was piggybacking on to um another another guy on twitter and i apologize i can't remember his actual name he he goes by i think at run the jewels uh g i mean uh, j-u-l-e-s but i i can't presumably remember. not his his christian name as they say no no or <laughs> uh also i don't think anything affiliated with hip-hop i think it's just somebody completely different whatsoever um, but the idea that AD is basically figuring out how to deal with, a, you know, the after effects of a long playoff run, you know, because last season was the first time he had ever been on this long of a run. I mean, forget the fact that it's a quick turnaround. Like he, he had never been to the finals before. I, I don't even remember. I mean, had the Pelicans been to the Western Conference finals? I, I, I can't recall off the top of my head. No, they um, no, had that second no. round series after they kind right, of exactly. Portland that year. That was exactly, exactly. So I mean, like this was something really new for AD. On top of how fast it was, he's learning how to negotiate this, as opposed to somebody like LeBron, who has a zillion miles. But you know, he's been to I think it's nine of the last eleven finals. You know, something like that. So I mean, this, even under uh, compressed circumstances, he knows what it means to to recover you know to have a relatively speaking shorter off season than everybody else and, and this is something that ad is just trying to figure his way through do, do you think there could be something to that because he has not come out of the gate as hot as a lot of people myself ex uh included expected i do actually that's something that i haven't even considered like beyond the turnaround like I, I figured, you know, the, I wouldn't be surprised if LeBron or Browns kind of slow play it through the beginning of the season. This was the turnaround, but that's a great point. This is that was the first extended playoff run of Anthony Davis' career on top of the quick turnaround. So that could definitely explain some of the blah energy effort that we've seen from him so far this year. Yeah, I mean, there there are times like I feel like where he where he kind of wants to crank it up, and it's not quite there. It's like not as instant. I'm not a lot. Most of the time, it's there, but I and, I and I think little things like you know just the mental stuff, like you know the the missing the free throws. I think is just dragging him down in ways that that he's not used to. Um, and you know if if you're a, a, a fan wondering where the extra three or four whatever points every night from Anthony Davis are aren't there from, it's the free throws. You know he's he's supposed to be averaging four and a half points a game more. Because he's not shooting the ball well, and I, you know, I think little stuff like that, because he has very high expectations, are just kind of dragging him down. So it's physically and mentally, I think it's a hard adjustment. Yeah, that's true. You know, the free throw shooting's at seventy-one percent, three-point shot is at thirty-two percent. Both numbers are, I believe, lower than what they were last year. So I think, I mean, that's low-hanging fruit for him. But yeah. it is encouraging. And those are legs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I do think it's also encouraging that. When he does ramp it up, like most times he can get there. Like I'll point back to the Houston matchup earlier this year where Christian Wood kind of made some of the air made some of the airways. It was like, I got this matchup penciled. And Anthony Davis, what do you have, like 20 on him in the first quarter or something like that? Yeah, he wasn't here for it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I mean, like Christian Wood, congratulations on on your breakout year, but no. I mean, no, you shouldn't have done that. And, and I felt bad for Wood because it kind of got played like Wood was like, I'm coming for you, AD. Like, I'm going to take you. To he was just like, 
I'm excited at the challenge of playing. I think Anthony they're friends. Day. I think I yeah. think they're actually like they yeah. have a relationship. They, they, it wasn't shit talking. Like it was no. just him being amped to play against one of the best players <laughs> in the league. It's like exactly what you would want a young player to be. Like not shying away from it, but it got turned into Christian Wood thinks he can own Anthony Davis. Did not work out. Uh, Speaking of AD, uh, Nikias, um, as we sort of start looking around the rest of the league, you wrote a good piece for uh, Basketball News about Bam Adebayo and the evolution of his game. You were recently on with uh, Kevin O'Connor for uh, with The Ringer um, talking at more length about Bam and the, the potential for him to be a top 10 player. What are the things that you're still looking for from Bam? And in particular, I want to ask you about this. Is is the potential template for him or the avatar in terms of reaching that potential AD? Like when you just start thinking about like the type of skill set and versatility that somebody can have on both sides of the ball at that type of size. Yeah, I think AD East is kind of what you want to aim for. And if you can get to 85% of Anthony Davis, then you're looking at an all-star, which Pam is. If you get into 90 or 95% of Anthony Davis, then you're getting into that upper echelon. And I think Bam is starting to push that. Um, as, as I wrote in the piece, like I do worry about him finishing oversized. There are still a lot of awkward flips and a lot of finesse finishes around the rim to where he, when he's challenging these true centers. Like, as athletic as Bam is, as strong as Bam is, and he has the plus wingspan, he's still 6'9 with a 7'3 wingspan. So that's that's solid size. That's really good length, but that still isn't starting center. And that, you know, that that showcases throughout, you know, the portions of a game to where he's attacking a guy and trying to figure out ways to finish over. And I, But that's also why I think the development of his jumper has been so important because he doesn't have to take – as many beatings against traditional centers if you can just knock down elbow jumpers at, like, at a 50% clip like he has for most of the year. So just having that counter in his bag helps it preserves him because he has to do a lot of heavy lifting defensively, especially now since, you know, Jimmy Butler's out and um, Avery Bradley came back, but he's out again. So they're missing a lot of guys and Miami has him switching all over the place and he's crashing the glass. And he's tasked with carrying the load offensively because of all these guys being out. So I think having something like that just to kind of conserve some of his energy, I think is huge for him. Who do you see as a comp in terms of the kind of the just the 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 incredibly steady growth? And I realize you know PR is not a you know a perfect metric for this, but you go back as a rookie, fifteen point seven via Basketball Reference, but you know uh, second year, eighteen, third year, a little over twenty, this year, a little you know twenty three and a half. You know, these are pretty big chunks of of improvement year after year after year for a guy who's, I think, 23, correct? Um, I, I have my answer, but I want to hear Nikias's first. Who do you see as the, you know, some of the, like the comps for that kind of thing where you kind of just look up and go, holy shit, like this guy keeps adding stuff every year. He's just that much better every year. I think the easy one in within that context is Pascal Siakam. Interesting. Just, just because he... I mean, Pascal, just he went from super cool energy player to important role player to quality starter to all-star, and then he starts to do a number one role and all-NBA guy. And he kind of plateaued this year. He's starting to pick it up now. But just in terms of that consistent growth, I mean, we, as we see with young players around the league all the time, like that kind of progress is rare, but progress in general isn't linear for a young guy. Like a lot of different factors go into it. 
And the fact that Bam has been able to go from, you know, energy guy to role player behind Hassan Whiteside, the quality starter to all-star. And now he has made legit superstar flashes this season. And that's, I mean, it's obviously been huge for him. Here's the one I had. Whoa. Ooh, all right. What? Well, I mean, I think when you start looking at his progression, you know, in some ways, I think with, with skill set, it's not a completely apples to apples, but in some ways, skill set, but also just continually getting better in these very tangible ways. We forget that when Giannis first started, he was not Giannis. Like, he, he Greek Freak was his nickname. It was like watching a baby deer play basketball. Right, right. I mean, it, Greek Freak was the nickname because it, he was a a sick athlete. You could tell that right away, and be just Greek and freak rhyme. So it, it made a lot of sense. But like Giannis did not look like Giannis out of the gate. Like I, I think that has become kind of forgotten with his rise becoming so pronounced. You know. So, and I remember what I don't remember what it was, but last off season, I actually looked up some of Bam's numbers, comparing them to Giannis. And I noticed how similar a lot of them were. Like there are a lot of similarities in their year-to-year numbers starting out. So that that's why Giannis came to mind for me. No, I can definitely see where you're coming from there. I also like that comparison because you can see just where the things on the margins matter the most. To where you know Bam six nine with a seven three wingspan, Giannis mm-hmm. is six eleven with a seven five wingspan. The body's mm-hmm. filled out, and that's where. Giannis is able to have these ridiculous finishes over guys and through guys because he's so strong and he, you know, has those extended arms and can get those kind of finishes that just aren't accessible to Bam. And that's kind of where I think it's dangerous to say Bam's ceiling is capped anywhere just because of the way that he's grown. But in terms of the physical limitation, you can just see even a couple of inches in the wingspan, a couple inches in height. It, it just unlocks things for Giannis that just aren't available to Bam right now. Well, I hope Giannis isn't watching this, Nikias. You just ruined his day. I mean, uh, Bam. I'm sorry, Bam. You ruined his day. Well, I mean, if you if, you know if you end up slightly not quite uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo, you're still probably a pretty good player. Uh, but like, where where does he finish out? Because I mean, this is you know we talk about something that's just massive for Miami. There there is a huge difference between you know their future in the Eastern Conference with Bam as a you know perennial all-star you know second third team guy you know whatever might be and bam as a you know borderline hyper elite player who is a you know contender for first team every year Um, i i mean i think the jury's kind of out like again there are still some limitations that bam is trying to work through i do think that's kind of the silver lining for miami having so many guys out right now is because bam has kind of forced to force the issue he's forced to expand his game you know, we've seen the increase. I mean, we've seen the increase in the effectiveness in the effectiveness of his jumper. So that's been huge. The big thing for him is just aggression in general. Like I think he has needed to be nudged in this direction for a while. Like he was an All Star last year, and he very well could have been putting together more twenty point efforts if he was actually looking at the basket. Like he just kind of he get the ball in the high post. He's staring down Duncan Robinson or staring down Goran Dragic or staring down Tyler Hero. To operating these handoffs or these or these pick and rolls to where he can face up and attack a guy at the dribble. So the fact that he's doing that more this year, I think it's going to be huge for him now and moving forward. 
Um, we'll just have to see how the rest of his game fills out to see if he does make that leap into that hyper elite class or not. It's funny, like you know, it's you, you know, so much of, of perception. Like when you think of a guy's skill set, like it, I, I, people may not understand how developed his skill set is. And you know, go check out your uh, people should check out piece to see. You know, you have the video breakdowns and you can really see what what Bam is doing. It's just you think of him as an energy player. His name's Bam. Like, I think a lot. It's hard to get past some of that stuff. Uh, but like speaking of sort of that kind of improvement, uh, Joel Embiid has just been crushing it in in Philly this year. Obviously, you know, sort of early MVP candidate. Is their improvement that just kind of does it come down to ultimately oh, Embiid is playing that much better? Um, how much is that? How much is the sort of structural changes that they made with with Curry and Green and, and stuff like that? You know, they they just beat the Lakers the other night too. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Like Joel seems to be in a little bit better shape. Like the minutes are definitely up there compared to last year. He stayed healthier for the most part. Um, and the structure changes are huge for him. Just having shooters, you can't double as easily and you can't double as quickly, which means Joel Embiid just has more one-on-ones, or at least off the first couple of dribbles of his post-up, he has that one-on-one. And that's kind of all he needs because he has incredible touch, incredible footwork, incredible strength, incredible size. So the fact that he's been putting better positions, it's made him more difficult to guard and it's made the Sixers more difficult to guard. Yeah, you know what's really interesting, Nikias, and and this surprised me today. I, I was looking up some numbers before you came on because I know we wanted to ask you about Philly. And their th- actual three-point percentage this season is basically the same as last season's. And the amount of attempts per game is literally the same. It's 31.6 per game both years. But when you've got guys like Danny Green and Seth Curry on the floor, you know, combined with Embiid actually shooting better from outside, but like those guys in particular, the gravitational pull and the reputation, mm-hmm. I imagine would make defenses treat them differently, even if in some in some ways they they're not shooting that much better. You're you're gonna think about them differently. You might scheme against them differently. Yeah, like that's that's really what it is. Like they literally have a curry on their roster. And you know, he you know, he isn't stiff, but when you have a guy that can shoot at that high of a clip stationary or otherwise, you have to have added attention. And what the Sixers have been doing, at least particularly on one set, they'll have Curry lift off of a screen from Embiid, get the ball, you know, I mean he'll catch the ball off that screen, and then it's immediately a dump in to Joel Joel Embiid on the block. And from there, you help one play, you help one man away, it's Seth Curry taking a wide open three. So the double has to come somewhere else, and those are easier passing reads for Joel Embiid to make as well. So it's just having that kind of pull from a guy like Curry, it just bends defenses in a way to where they there are no good options. Like it's either one-on-one coverage or you send help from somewhere that's going to force a longer rotation. And with Joel Embiid posting up in the position that he is, it's an easier kickout for him, and it's, it's just open look. So the volume may be the same, but the attention before that shot is yeah. so much different than last year. So when you when you look at the at the East, how many teams would you say kind of legitimately have a chance? Like let's say we'll put the threshold like fifteen percent, like fifteen percent or better of advancing out of the conference. How many teams do you think legitimately have that kind of opportunity? And then which teams? Um, I would say Milwaukee's definitely there. Sure. Philly's definitely there. Brooklyn's definitely there, and Boston is definitely there. So I think in terms of the fifteen percent, I think that's where it's at. 
if Miami can get their team back on the floor, do they qualify? It becomes a matchup game for them like it was last year. But I do think they – I mean, there's a path to where they could do that. They still match up really well with a team like Milwaukee. If you do get in a position to where the shooters don't really show up for Philly, you know, that's an interesting matchup there just because they're good. Miami is very good at helping off the non-shooters. That's just been a spoke staple defending. It doesn't matter what the defense is. Switch heavy, drop heavy, zone heavy. They locate the, the non-shooters, and then they send extra attention elsewhere because of that. So I think that's where they would force a guy like Ben Simmons to beat them. So I do think that could be an intriguing matchup. But they haven't earned that equity, I don't think, just because of how healthy they've been this year to be in that 15% or better class. Right. What about the West? And obviously, there are two teams that everybody points to. Do you see a third team, maybe a fourth team that actually, you know, we're still only like 15, 16, 17 games in, or if you're the Grizzlies, five. Um, <laughs> I, so, like, there, there's a lot of space left in this season. Utah is playing incredibly well right now. Denver's been disappointing, but obviously had their run last year. How many teams do you think legitimately could win in the West? I think it's just I think it's just the Lakers and Clippers right now. Mm. Like I want to believe in Denver, but I am just They've been better they, lately. They have been better lately and Jokic might be the MVP this year. Uh, God, I love I love out. watching him. I love watching him play. He's tremendous. I'm glad that he's like trying to score on purpose this year. Like that is just um he already unlocks everything because he just sees everything on the court. But like now that he's going to score first, it's just made him more dangerous. But the wing depth defensively really worries me for Denver. It just makes me hard to go there with him. And Jamal Murray's just been weird this year. And then with well, he's looked a lot more. He sort of just looked like Jamal Murray throughout his career. But now we all, th- at least so many people, like your last memory of him was, holy crap, well, look what he did in the bubble. Um, so the expectation of him being better this year, I mean, I think Mitchell's struggled with that a little bit too. Um, you know, kind of that raised expectation that comes from what those two guys did in Orlando. All right. And to Murray's credit, like he has been a lot better defensively. He has taken a legitimate step there. The passing has, start, has continued to improve a little bit, but it's just, you know, still struggling with shot selection a little bit. And then the shots themselves haven't fallen at the same clip as last year. So that's probably going to bounce back a little bit, but I, you need to leap from him. And then Denver is a move away on the wing. I feel like they just need someone that if they match up with a team like the Clippers, if they match up with the Lakers, they need bodies to throw on LeBron or anything. They're not going to find a stopper, especially on the trade market. If you have a guy that you feel right. like can defend either of those two guys, you're not trading them. But like Eddie, the tier Eddie. or two below, like they need to find someone. You need to find a way to trade for Jeremy Grant. Any belief? Right, he'd be perfect. <laughs> any belief? Any belief in uh, Utah? It's the same issue to a lesser extent because like Royce O'Neal is very good, Joe Ingles is very good. It's just Joe Ingles is a little small for LeBron, and Royce O'Neal may be their best like three four defender. But Royce O'Neal is also like 6'5", 6'6". And if you're yeah. putting him on Anthony Davis, that's just – I mean, you can't really that. <laughs> I, I, I just – I want to say I, I just really appreciate how this like reformed, uh, new and sleek Jokic, like he's clearly dropped some weight and he's moving really well and all that. He still looks kind of like one of us. You know, <laughs> like he, he lost the weight but didn't get like super yoked out. Like it's not like muscle guy – 
it's it's kind of aspirational. Like we can all identify with him. I really appreciate him doing that for us. I respect it honestly. <laughs> we, need, we need someone. <laughs> I've said that before. I, I I think Mark Gasol has been fine for the Lakers, and I'm not saying he's out of shape, but his overall presentation I find very. Uh, you, need, you need a tailor for that uniform. Like they need to kind of inch it in, let it out. Mark Gasol feels very man of the people in in a way that I really I really appreciate. He, he always looks like. He showed up to every game, uh, every game after a long, uh, long beer pong session, and <laughs> and I, I again I appreciate that him drawing the three of us and others like us into his world. It's nice. It's very nice. They, they don't lose touch. The stars are just like us. Um, <laughs> all right, the guys talking. You can go. You uh, sign up for the sub- sign up. Subscribe to the podcast, the Dunker Spot, uh, where you get all of your podcasts. You read his stuff at Basketball News. Uh, it's just. D- Doing great work this year and getting a ton of recognition for it. Dare all. I say a rising so, star, Nikias? I think so. There, I don't know how many, how much longer we're going to be able to get you on our show. Like it's just going to be too difficult. Um, but uh, <laughs> congratulations, you really the, the for all the success is really well earned, and you know the work is just tremendous. So thanks, yeah. for on. we appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for having me on anytime, man. That's Nikias Duncan, um, and he says anytime, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know, Andy, if we're going to be able to get him. Uh, but in all seriousness, he is he is just doing spectacular work. And I was saying on the chat during the during the uh, during the interview, like one of the things we talk a lot about NBA social media and NBA Twitter, and some things that are good, some things that are bad. But one of the things that I think is great is that like talent gets noticed and like good young talent particularly gets noticed. Um, and he's definitely in that group. So oh, yeah. no, really he, cool. Nikias is really, really, he was just uh, on the uh, ringer video with uh Kevin O'King maker. Yeah. That's right. Like, oh. Or Dr. Kevin O'Connor to you and me. Um, Dr. Kevin O'Connor. Yeah. Dr. O'Connor. I mean, so much responsibility to be able to watch all those games and keep our president healthy. I really do respect it. Um, all right. So, it's uh that was that was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Nikias for coming on. Uh, as you can see, scrolling across the bottom of the screen, really excited on Monday. We'll be joined by Meta World Peace. Uh, he's got a, a really cool new app um, that he's going to come talk about. We're going to talk hoops. We're going to talk tech. Uh, we're going to talk all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's what happens when you when you talk to Meta. The app is called X versus X Sports uh, for male and female basketball enthusiasts trying to discover, connect, and play in live, locally hosted pickup games, scrimmages, tryouts, showcase games based on their skill levels. Um, so that's don't, really interesting. Come to the the showcase games for the ones that I'm playing at my skill level, not as good. I, yeah, well, I think that's more like the, I don't know, like Z versus Z. Yeah, they, don't, they, don't they, don't, they don't have an app for that. No. Um, but yeah, so that's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, really excited to have Meta with us on Monday, and uh, you really have a great slate of guests. I think next week, um, some really interesting guys from pop culture and uh, social media and marketing, and just it's gonna be a, a, a fun week and an interesting one. And we're really excited about it. Yeah, Jake Brandon on Tuesday. He's the host of the great music podcast Disgraceland, uh, about just the history of people in pop and rock and hip-hop r&b and just the commonality of pretty outrageous crazy and at times genuinely bad behavior that's been in music um it's a it's a phenomenal podcast i've been a big fan of it for a few years 
So very excited to have him on Tuesday. Uh, CJ Toledano, Wednesday, Friday, Jared Wade. So it's, it's a good week. Yep. And even we, we've even got people lined up for the week after that. Like we are, this is like, this has been the golden age of booking. On this show. Yeah. We're, we're well ahead of schedule. We've gotten on quite a little roll. Um, all right. So uh, thanks again to everybody for tuning in. And we appreciate all the support we've been getting on the show. Uh, it's been really strong and we, we really appreciate it. Um, you guys are fantastic. Uh, and we will see everybody Monday with Meta World Peace. Thank you, Nederland. <laughs>